Mary, Emma, and Company by Ralph Moody, Chapter 22, The Law of Salvage. Hmm. I want to pause tonight, Lord God, and pray for the delivery of, of Cecilia. I thank you that uh, now he's been admitted to the hospital and I ask you to guard and keep her. Let Tammy get there on time. Uh, how I thank you, Lord, for the blessing of grandchildren. And uh, I do pray that uh, you watch over the entire family as we uh, eagerly welcome another child into this home and guard everyone who's uh, sleeping and, and resting in different places. Pray that your word go out and be made visible in the lives of our kids and grandkids. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, by five minutes of seven Saturday morning, the boys were all gathered out in front of our house. While we were walking down to the marshes, I thought, oh no, I told them how I thought we could get the big timbers that were stranded in the eelgrass. The high tide would be at 926, and that we'd have to hurry to be ready for it. First, we'd hide our clothes in the old abandoned brick shed far out on the marshes. Then everybody would scatter out through the eelgrass along the river hunting for the timbers. Whenever anybody found one, he'd stick up a pole or a board beside it and hang a shirt or handkerchief on top. Then, when we had them all marked, we'd decide which ones would be easiest to get into the river. Finding the timbers and marking them was a harder job than I thought it would be. We had to wade through muck up to our knees, and the sharp eelgrass cut our feet and legs like hacksaw blades. But by half past eight, we had shirts and handkerchiefs hanging from poles and boards for more than half a mile along the river margin. <clears throat> Some of them were no more than a few yards back from the mud flat, but others were as much as 80 or 90 feet. I could count 26 flags when I called the boys together. I told them that the flood tide would last only a half hour, so we couldn't take all the timbers, but I thought we might get the 8 or 10 nearest mud flats if we practiced till we had a system worked out. At first, we couldn't find a way to budge the heavy timbers. Our legs sank into the soft muck up to our thighs when we tried to drag one with ropes, and we were afraid we'd never be able to move them, even with the help of a flood tide. Each one of them was a foot and a half wide, a foot thick, and nearly 30 feet long. Worse still, there were old bent spikes and bolts sticking out of them that would snag in the eelgrass and keep them from sliding. It was Al Richardson who figured out a way that would work. We all lay on our backs with behind the nearest timber with our bottoms about a foot away from it and our knees doubled up when i counted up to three we pushed out hard with our feet and without even a drop of water under it the timber rolled o over all we had to do was keep ooching and rolling it in less than three minutes we had it out on the mud flat as soon as that timber was out on the mud we scrambled up and floundered to the next one flopped down and started it rolling by the time the tide began edging back through the eelgrass we had nine timbers afloat with every inch the tide rose the timbers rolled easier when there were six or eight inches of water in the eelgrass, we didn't have to roll them. They were so nearly afloat that three boys, floundering along on their knees, could slide one into deep water. I hadn't planned to do any bossing, but somebody had to do it, and the boys didn't seem to mind my shouting and telling them what to do next. I split them into teams of threes, told each team which timber to take next and what to do when one got snagged in the eelgrass. If you're just sitting on a bank watching the tide come up or go down, it doesn't seem to rise or fall an inch an hour. But if you want it to stand still, it seems to rise and fall like a pump handle. It didn't seem to me like we'd been had more than five minutes when timbers would float before the flood was gone. 
and there was only a shimmer of water draining away between the blades of eelgrass. Maybe it was just as well it went so quickly, because the boys, and even I, who hadn't done much of the work, were tired and winded. As I looked around the marsh, I could see only seven flags left, and they were all far back from the water. So I shouted to the boys and told them we had all we were going to take. For the next hour, we didn't do anything except to tie our 19 timbers together into four rafts and anchor them where the water was four or five feet deep and lie on them while our backs and bellies sunburned. With the tide running out to sea and with our wanting to get our rafts a mile upriver to Foster's Beach, there didn't seem much reason to do anything else for a while. The tide was too strong to paddle against. But if we waited for it to turn, about all we had to do would be to steer. I think we might have wasted most of the day if the water hadn't been so cold and if my conscience hadn't started bothering me. I told Mother we were going for paving blocks, but we hadn't picked up a single one, so I shouted, I'll bet I know how we can make a lot more money today. There must be 10,000 paving blocks scattered around the marshes, and each one would make as much kindling as the bundles we sell at the store for six cents. It would be as easy to peddle as hot peanuts. I wasn't a bit sure the boys would want to wade around in the mud anymore, but it seemed to me that if I led the way, they might follow. So I dived over the side and swam as fast as I could toward the mud bank. In Colorado, I used to think I was a pretty good swimmer. But those Medford boys brought up right beside the Mystic River made me look like a mud turtle racing a school of trout. It's funny how fast you can learn to do things by doing them. When we first came onto the marshes that morning, we could hardly take a step without sinking up to our knees in the muck. But before we each picked up half a dozen armfuls of blocks, there wasn't one of us who was sinking above his ankles. Without more than glancing, we could pick up the solidest tufts and bounce from one to another, snatching up a block as we went before we had time to break before we had time to break through. When the twelve o'clock whistle blew at the brickyards, we had a pile of blocks at the edge of the mud bank that was nearly as big as a chicken coop. As soon as the whistle blew, I shouted, "It's noon. Let's go eat our lunches. Why go over there?" Somebody shouted back. Why not let a couple bring our stuff over here while the rest of us go clamming? Scattered through the marshes, there were potholes, some of them as much as 12 or 15 feet deep and 20 feet or so so wide. I think they were made by the tide dissolving and carrying out pockets of real fine clay, leaving the sides and bottoms firm and gravelly. The fattest clams to be found anywhere around Boston grew in the bottoms of the potholes, and the Medford boys had a system for getting them out. As soon as we'd drawn lots and the boys who lost had gone for the stuff, the rest of us went clamming. I went with Al and Allie, but I wasn't very much help to them. Al led the way to a place where there were two big potholes right close to each other. He picked up a short round point stick that was lying near one of the holes, drew a deep breath, and dived in. After a few seconds, a gray cloud drifted up to the surface of the water, then a few bubbles. But I was scared to death that Al had drowned before he popped to the surface. And when he popped up, he came as if he bounced off a springboard. His whole chest came above the water. Then he rolled onto his back, ducked his head just below, just enough to comb his hair, and swam to the bank. Before he was out of the water, Allie had picked up a stick and dived. As soon as Al could catch his breath enough to talk, he told me, It's your turn next. There's a big rock down there with a wire around it. Grab hold of the wire to keep yourself down and plow up as much bottom as you can before you run out of breath. You'll have to dig deep if you want to get the fattest clams. The only diving I'd ever done had been in the Platte River, and there weren't many places where it was more than knee-deep, so I had never been underwater for more than a couple of seconds at a time. 
Of course, I didn't tell that to Al. As soon as Allie popped to the surface, I grabbed the stick and dived in. But I didn't do any good. I wasn't more than three, <laughs> three or four feet underwater before I came to the top. You can't make it in a dive alone, Al shouted at me. You've got to swim to get down there. I ducked my head and swam as hard as I could. But instead of going down, I bumped into the bank. Don't dog paddle, you goop, Al yelled at me when I had to come up for air. Swim like a frog. I'd seen frogs swim plenty of times, so I pulled my knees up beside my ribs and kicked with my legs spread wide apart. Nothing happened, except that Al and Allie rolled around and laughed as if they'd gone crazy. After I tried a few more times, Al dived in and said, Here, let me show you, you dumbbell. If I hadn't known I'd made a monkey of myself, I wouldn't have let Al call me a dumbbell. But I kept still and let him show me. He flipped over so that his bottom stuck up like the tail of a feeding duck, then swept both arms back as he fluttered his feet. Within two seconds, he was out of sight in the murky water. I had to make five or six tries before I could get deep enough to grab hold of the wire on the rock. And by that time, my lungs were so close to exploding, I had to come up right away. But Al and Allie were experts. After they plowed up the bottom of the first hole, they let the clay settle while they plowed the second. Then they dived down with a leaky old bucket and picked up the clams they dug loose. I guess I showed, slowed Al and Allie up more than I realized. We were the last ones back to the rafts, and we must have brought the fewest clams. There was nearly a bushel piled up in the middle of the raft, and the boys were opening them. Most of their jackknives were big toad stabbers, and they didn't seem to mind how much they dulled the blades. A boy would pick up a clam, wiggle the blade of his knife into the crack between the shells, give it a little swing, and flip the top shell around a uh, top shell into the river. Another flip of the knife would turn the clam around in the turn the clam around in the bottom shell, and the boy would gulp it down as if he were eating a raw egg. I wasn't much better at opening clams than I was at digging them. Everyone I picked up was as stubborn as a mule. The first one kept his shell pinched so tight that it took me five minutes to wiggle my knife between them. When I tried to pry the top shell off the off, the blade snapped. Not that way, Hal told me. You've got to cut the muscle before you can flip the shell off. I'd never known clams had muscles until I opened one and showed me. And even after that, I wasn't much good at opening them, but it was just as well. When I, got, when, I, when I got one open, I could hardly make myself swallow it. Some of the boys made their whole lunch on clams. And then we rested and swam for about an hour before we went back to pick up more blocks. By quarter of four, when the tide turned, we had all four rafts stacked nearly three feet high with blocks and only enough room at the front and back for a couple of boys. As soon as the tide began, Turning upriver in good shape, we gathered our boards, and one of the boys, who could handle the hatchet real well, cut them into paddles. With a boy kneeling at each corner, they edged the, edged the loaded rafts out into the current and paddled away up the river toward Foster's Beach. Allie and I didn't go on the rafts, but put on our clothes and went to his house for the old running gear from his brother's wagon. The wheel hubs and turnplate had to be greased, and a couple of the tires that were loose had to be wedged tight. By the time we had it ready and pulled down to the beach, the rafts were coming around the last bend in the river. We were barely undressed again before the first one turned in for a landing. We were so anxious to see if my idea would work that we didn't wait for the last raft to get in before we tried it. We tossed part of the blocks off the first raft and separated one timber from the others and backed the running gear a straddle of it. As the wheels left the ground, we pushed the axles along until the timber floated evenly, then chained the bolsters to it. 
leaving the front chain just loose enough that the wheels would turn. By the time we had, the, had half a dozen pull ropes tied to the running gear, the last raft was in, so I had part of the boys wait down the back end of the timber while the rest of us pulled on the ropes. When the wheels touched bottom, the big timber hung evenly from the axles and it came up out of the water with a rush as we ran up the beach, howling like wild Indians. Everything worked fine till we reached the upper edge of the beach where it curves down steeply like the rim of a saucer. Then both ends of the timber dragged and the front dug into the gravel like a plow. We were trying to drag it along when a voice from above us called out, for glory's sakes, why don't you fetch it up, up slanchways? You'll never get, never in this living world pull it up at all, at all, by main strength and awkwardness. When we looked up, Cop Watson was standing at the rim of the beach, twirling his nightstick in a cartwheel and watching us. Get it back in the water where it will float, he told us, and drift it to that far corner yonder where the eelgrass commences. Then you can come up like a, in a widening curve and will fetch you up over the rim at, at the end of the roadway. Cop Watson not only told us how to get the timber up to the roadway, but he helped us. As soon as we pushed it up, I'm sorry, pushed it back into the water and floated it into place. He came down and picked up the end of the wagon pole. He told us he was only going to do the steering for us, but he pulled harder than any four of us put together. It didn't take us a minute to get up onto the roadway. We were all a little winded when we reached the roadway, and while we were resting, Cop Watson said, and now I have a notion I'll be having a fight to deal with when you go to divvying it up. No, sir, I told him. We had our deal all made before we started. I get half for having the idea, and everybody else gets share and share alike. A half, he said, looked at me out of one corner of his eye. Yes, sir, I said, but it was my idea, and none of us would have got any if I hadn't thought of it. And one of these timbers must be worth... I stopped because I could see Cop Watson wasn't listening to me. He stood for a minute, looked at the ground, and rubbing his mustache across his cheek with the back of a hand. Then he looked up and nodded and said, "'Tis fair enough, lads, tis fair enough. "'Tis ever the man with, when gets the idea and sets it to going that gets the gravy, "'not them that works with their hands. "'Now, you take old J.D. Like as not he ever done a day's work with his hands in all the living world. "'Look where he's at now. "'How many of them timbers did you salvage?' Nineteen, I told him.' He pointed his finger at each one of us as he counted and asked, Would you be telling me how you're going to divvy 19 into half and a half into 16? Well, I told him, we've got enough paving blocks to make a pile bigger than all the timbers put together. Some of the boys might want to take blocks instead of timber, and the blocks don't, won't have to be sawed to make firewood, and the timbers will. True, true, he said. And how many blocks do you call the equal of a beam? We haven't thought about that yet, I told him. How many would you think was fair? Cop Watson went over to the pile of blocks we tossed over the rim, bounced one of them in his hand a few times, and said, Well, now, there's two ways of looking at it. The work and what comes out of it. Them that takes blocks will have no sawing to do, and that's half of the job. So them that takes beams ought to get the double out of it when it comes in shape for burning. He ran a little finger inside the circle of his ear and looked back and forth between the blocks in his hand and the Big timber hanging from the axles of the running gear. How about calling it a hundred even? He said, how many of you boys would take a hundred blocks in the place of the timber? The, the boys divided exactly even. The laziest eight said they'd take blocks, and the other eight said nothing. With the division all worked out, we decided we'd take one load to our house and then a load to some 
other boys' houses, alternately, and they draw straws to find out in what order we take them, and the longest draw first and the shortest last. That was the fairest way we could do it because we had no idea how many we could haul that afternoon. Nobody could work on Sunday, and any that didn't get hauled before Monday were pretty apt to be swiped. It was Cop Watson who figured out a scheme that made it possible for us to haul every last block and timber before the 9 o'clock curfew sounded. Once the timber was up on the roadway, there was no sense in 17 of us going to deliver it. Four or five could trot and pull the load. So I picked the biggest four and told the others to watch our rafts didn't drift away as the tide rose, and that they might lug all the blocks up to the roadway where they'd be handy for loading. We took the first timber to our house, wheeling it to one edge of the back lawn, and unloaded it as easily as it had loaded. All I had to do was put down blocks and have the boys pry up one end at a time while I pulled the bolt and drew the chain out from under it. I don't believe we were gone from the beach more than 15 minutes. When we got back, Cop Watson was showing the boys how to make a wagon body with some pieces of driftwood boards, some bent nails, and a hatchet. There's no sense at all, at all, in squandering daylight, he told me as we came trotting up with the empty running gear. Them dry blocks don't weigh next to nothing, and with a body on that contraption, you could be hauling a, block, a load of blocks atop and a beam beneath. Once we knew how to get the beams from the river to the roadway, it wasn't a very tough job. It didn't take over five minutes to hook on and snake one up, and with a driftwood um, box to hold them, 17, or eight of, 17 of us could toss on 100 blocks and almost nothing flat. <coughs> Whoever was going to get the timber or the blocks went along to show us where to unload. And by making two deliveries at one trip, we saved nearly half our time. When we delivered the third load at our house, half the kids in the neighborhood were there to watch us. And Mother came out to tell us what a fine job we'd done. When I told her we'd just started and that we still had eight more timbers to bring home, she said, Gracious sakes, you boys must be bone-tired and nearly starved to death. After one or two more loads, you must stop for supper and some rest. We can't, I told her. If we do, we'll, have n we'll never be finished by curfew time. And anything we don't haul tonight will probably be swiped by Monday. Oh, you mustn't work right through without eating, she told me. But she didn't say right out now that I'd have to stop for supper. So I just told her we'd be back in a little while, and we trotted away. Our next deliveries were nearly down to Salem Street, so it was almost 6 o'clock before we got back to our house with a load. I didn't want to give Mother too much of a chance to come out and tell me I'd have to stop for supper. So we just dropped the timber, tipped the body over up to spill the blocks, and started back out of the yard. We'd only gone as far as the kitchen steps when Grace opened the door and said, don't be in such a rush. You wait right where you are till I get down there. Grace didn't often try to boss me around when I was with other boys. I think I might have told her to mind her own business, but she closed the door too soon, so all I could do was wait. But we didn't have to wait long. In another minute, she opened the door and came down the steps with a bean pot in her hand. It must have been straight out of the oven because she was carrying it with pot holder mittens. Mother was right behind her with a big pan of gingerbread wrapped in a towel and a box of plates and cups and knives and forks. Now, just hold on a minute. She told me she'd set them on the block box. Grace would be right along with a loaf of brown bread and a pail of cocoa. She's going to along to see what, that you boys get some supper into you. You can eat it right down there at the river, and she'll bring the dishes home when you're through. Now, do be careful, and don't strain yourselves with those great pieces of lumber. I think the sliding at the clay pit must have done something for to Grace. She had tried to be a bit grown up that evening, but rode down to the beach on the old wagon and laughed and joked with the boys all the time she was dishing up our supper. Half a dozen of the boys told me I didn't know how lucky I was to have a sister like her. Of course, I didn't mention the way she usually tried to boss me around. As soon as we'd eaten, they made me 
take the next load right back to our house. And I think it was mainly because so the bigger boys could go along and ride Grace back on the wagon. With every trip, uh, the tide made, with every trip we made, the tide rose higher and the pull up the beach was easier. After supper, nobody doubted we'd get the job finished before curfew time, so we didn't bother with turns any longer, but went wherever we could deliver timber and a load of blocks right in the same neighborhood. It was half past eight when we pulled away from Foster's Beach with the last timber and the last paving block. That was the 11th timber we took to our house, and we must have taken more than a 1,000 blocks along with them. After it was unloaded, I helped Allie put the, pull the running gear back its place behind Dion's barn, and I was running up our back steps just as the curfew bell rang. And again, I'm amazed at how much Ralph was able to get done and all those boys. I love you. Have a great day.